A lot of people will say, smells like kiwi, acts like kiwi. It probably is kiwi, right? Welcome to ETF Market Insights, a podcast where some of Canada's leading investment experts guide you through the world of exchange-traded funds. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and welcome to our Market Insights podcast, the quarterly portfolio strategy edition for Q2 of 2023. My name is Erica Toth, and I'm a director of ETF distribution at BMO ETFs for Eastern Canada. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Alfred Lee, director, investment strategist, and portfolio manager at BMO ETFs. Alfred's been putting together a quarterly strategy report, or QSR as we call it internally, and its corresponding balanced ETF model for over 10 years now. Today, we're going to unpack some of the key market events that we saw over this last quarter, and we're going to talk about their implications on the portfolio construction and positioning in the ETF model. So this quarter, the U.S. regional banking crisis is obviously the main development. Uh, has this been resolved, Alfred, and how do you compare it to the savings and loans crisis? Do you think they're similar? What can we learn from this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, the good news is that in the couple of weeks that Silicon Valley and Signature Bank went into receivership a couple of weeks ago, I think the good news is that the markets have been relatively stable. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, the backstop measures that the Fed put in place. So backstopping the FDIC and also putting the bank term funding program in place as well. But as I mentioned, I think it's too early to tell. But I think you can bring up a good point. I, I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of you know practitioners within the industry, such as advisors, um, portfolio managers, and whatnot. And they're always trying to draw comparisons to 2008. And you know, as you recall, when back in 2008, the sentiment on the street was very different, where there's a lot of widespread panic. We're not quite seeing that in the current banking crisis. It, it's really been just focused on not just the regional banks, but just a lot of the smaller regional banks. So the feel is very different than 2008. But I think you bring up a good point where it's very similar to the savings and loans crisis. So you know, to some of our listeners that may not be aware or familiar with the savings and loans crisis, it basically took place in the 1980s, uh, carried all the way to the early 1990s. But essentially, there's a lot of similarities. So in the 1980s, essentially, a lot of these banks or savings and loans banks were investing in longer duration securities. So when Volcker, the Fed chair at the time, was raising rates aggressively to fight off inflation, a lot of these banks got caught offside basically due to asset liability mismatching, which is exactly what we're seeing today with the health and maturity portfolios. In addition to that, I think um, a lot of people were doing a lot of finger pointing towards you know, deregulation being, being the reason. Uh, we had the Gone St. Germain Act back, back then. In 2008, we had the deregulation or the relaxation of Dodd-Frank. So a lot of similar, similarities in that uh, regard as well. In addition, to that, I think what exacerbated inflation was there's a lot of social programs put in place back then. So there's the Greater Society Act. Uh, today, we have Biden's um, Inflation Reduction Act. So a lot of similar similarities there as well. And then the FDIC obviously was given unlimited power to backstop uh, the depositors this time around. Back then, we had um, a very similar program back then. It was the Federal Savings and Loans Insurance Corporation, which is very similar to the FDIC that was forced to backstop all the depositors. So there's a lot of similarities. And just one more point, just to make it a little bit more eerily similar, there was a bank, one of the more notable banks that went down uh, during the savings and loans crisis. The name was Silverado, 
one of the banks that went down this time was Silvergate. So there's a lot of similarities, interestingly. But I think, you know, the big difference is hopefully the backstop measures that I mentioned earlier that the Fed put in place hopefully is enough to instill confidence into the regional bank and prevent further crisis. But, you know, it's definitely too early to tell from this standpoint. So, Alfred, you actually decreased your position of ZBK, which is our U.S. equal weight bank CTF last quarter. You took the weight down from 6% to 3% in the model. Was that insight? Was it luck? What do you think we can expect going forward? We're going to claim uh, a little bit of both, but I, I think you know there definitely is a lot of luck to it. I mean, I think there's two two parts to it. I think uh, you know anybody saying that they had insight into the portfolios of a lot of these regional banks, you know, even if you had insight, there's there's it's very difficult to say that if you knew those portfolios were underwater, it's very difficult to say that those banks would have went down that specific quarter. So. There was a good degree of luck to it, but at the same time, when we were looking at it, you know, we were thinking to ourselves, well, if we had a 3% position, would we rather be in banks or would we rather be in other asset classes like bonds? So we thought from a risk-adjusted uh, level, the, the bonds definitely looked a lot more attractive uh, just because we wanted to take on a little bit of duration risk at the time. As you recall, you know, we anticipated central banks to ease up on monetary policy at the time, so we want to take on a little bit of duration risk. But going forward, I think, you know, if you are bullish on the banks, it's really an indirect bet that you think that inflation is essentially dealt with. Because, you know, if you think inflation has been dealt with, that means the Fed is going to hold off on interest rates. If you think that inflation is going to go up, that means the Fed has to act aggressively and raise rates, which is going to put more pressure on those health and maturity portfolios of those regional banks. So I think you know, if you're going to bet on the banks, it's really an indirect bet that you think inflation is over. And I think if you're willing to make that bet, I'd be more comfortable investing in things like, you know, long-term bonds, technology, real estate uh, investment trust. I think that's a, a better way to do it just because you're not taking that insolvency risk. I think if you want to bet on the U.S. banks, I think if you're looking three to five years out, it's probably a good bet. I think the best way to do it is probably through an ETF because you you know, if you're getting into ZBK, for example, you know, you're getting diversification across a number of different banks. I think over the next three years, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of, you know, merger and acquisition activities, uh, bigger banks taking over smaller banks. Wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of the Canadian banks specifically, just because, as you know, they tend to be very opportunistic and they've done very well in, you know, acquiring banks when it's the most opportune time. So I think if you're looking three to five years out, I think it is a pretty good bet. But, you know, from this standpoint, I think there's better risk-adjusted bets out there. So for now, you have eliminated your position in ZBK out of our uh, balanced model. One interesting uh, tidbit that I should weave into the discussion here is, you know, on the back of this U.S. banking concerns and and issues, we've seen actually, we have seen actually inflows into uh, the U.S. bank CTFs, but we've seen far greater inflow into the Canadian bank CTF. So if we look at the month of March, we had collectively about a billion dollars of assets, of net assets flow into ZEB, which is our equal weight Canadian banks. Uh, So the lion's share of that billion went into the ZEB and ZWB to a lesser extent, which is the covered call equal weight Canadian banks. So buying opportunistically after after the share prices of the Canadian banks declined as as a result of what was going on in the States. Now, my question to you is, do you feel like we will see a crisis in 
Canadian banks. Um, you know, there was a recent report on Bloomberg where uh, they said that TD was the largest short due to its U.S. regional bank exposure um, and also concerns about uh, exposure to the housing market. So what, what are your thoughts on, on the Canadian banks at this point? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, I took a read through the article. Um, I'm not going to say it's fake news, but it was definitely very clickbaity, I, I would say. Uh, we had a lot of good discussions with our friends over at TD and the TD Market Making Desk as well, uh, just to get some of their insight. Um, they brought up a lot of good points. So, you know, when you look at TD, TD is a pretty big, um, you know, company where there's a lot of shares outstanding. So when that report came out, they were just reporting on the total notional that was being shorted. Uh, I think what is the more relevant number is the total shares uh, shorted shorted as a percentage of the total shares outstanding. So when you consider that, TD is actually the fourth uh, most shorted bank uh, when you look at it from a percentage standpoint. So I think the um, you know the headline number that they used was a little bit more attention grabbing. Uh, in addition to that, I think there's a lot of noise to those short numbers as well. So as you know, uh, TD is expected to acquire um, First Horizon. Um, that deal is expected to close. So because of that, you know there naturally is a lot of merger arbitrage activity. So a lot of people will go long the acquire, acquired company, which is First Horizon, and they would go short the acquiring company, which is TD. So just because of that merger acquisition activity, there's a lot of people that would naturally short TD. Um, there could be other people that could be taking the opposite view where they think, you know, potentially the deal may fall apart. So they could go long the big, you know, the remaining big Canadian five banks and they could short TD. So there's a lot of natural reasons why you'd want to short it. So I know you know, the narrative over the last 10 years has been, you know, a lot of hedge funds in the U.S. want to short the Canadian banks because they think higher interest rates is going to put stress on, you know, particularly a lot of, um, you know, mortgage uh, owners where they have to refinance at a higher rate. We haven't seen that. Uh, we've been paying very close attention to the real estate market in Canada. As rates have stabilized over the last couple of months, what we've been noticing actually is that certain neighborhoods multiple bids are starting to come back and and properties are starting to go above asking again. So the real estate market here is very different. The banking industry is also very different as well, where it's independently regulated uh, by OSFI. OSFI requires them to have much higher capitalization rates than even Basel. Um, and, you know, when I look at ZEB, which is our equal weight bank ETF that you mentioned, um, P ratios on a forward looking basis, uh, 25% discount to the market, you get a 5% yield, and when I look at, you know, my Bloomberg terminal, when I look at the historical valuations of the uh, banking sector on the PE basis, over the last 20 years, um, the banks have only gotten this cheap two times. Uh, 2009 was once and 2020 was the other time. So both of those were great buying opportunities. Uh, we have an 8% position in ZEB in our portfolio strategy at this point. I would say that's probably our max for, our, uh, for a sector ETF. Um, but from a sector perspective, this is, you know, I think this is a great opportunity uh, for Canadian banks at this point. So, Alfred, in terms of the way that you construct um, the balance model in the equity sleeve, you tend to do about two thirds into the core longer term exposures and one third into sector oriented or, or satellite exposures. So outside of the Canadian banks right now, where are you seeing the best sector opportunities? 
It's a good question. You know, I, I talked a lot about uh, long duration plays, both in the bond space and also the equity space as well. So, you know, on the equity side of the portfolio, I'd say technology is one of those areas that looks pretty attractive at this point. So, as you know, you know, technology took a pretty good beating last beating year. Beating last year, yeah. yeah. I think it was down 30% in local terms, right? So yeah. this year, it's it's up 20% already. But when you look at the rally in the U.S. Uh, technology sector, it hasn't been uniform where, you know, larger cap technology has outperformed. So I think, you know, when you look at a lot of the cash-rich companies like uh, Google, Microsoft, um, um, you know, uh, Apple as well, I think those are good examples where, those are the mature kind of more consumer stable-ish companies that have been outperforming. Um, and I think those are the ones that have been unfairly punished last year as well. So I think, you know, that rally is going to be very good for ZUQ, which is our uh, high quality US uh, ETF. But what we wanted to do was add a little bit more tech exposure. So we added 3% to ZWT, which is our covered call technology ETF. And we like this one because it focuses on larger cap technology stocks. Uh, 30 largest tech companies in the U.S. But what we're doing in addition to this is we're writing call options. So you get an additional 5% yield. And as you know, you know, with technology, you usually don't get a yield. So this is a good way to play technology. The other sector that we like is energy as well. So as you know, you know, there's this big transition into uh, renewable energy. Governments are pushing towards renewable energy. Um, so a lot of traditional energy companies have been hesitant to um, invest in infrastructure, which has exacerbated this supply and demand um, equation. So on the supply side, it's been very short just because uh, when you look at the Russia and Ukraine, that Russian oil has been sanctioned and taken offline. Uh, but on the demand side, you know, we've moved past COVID. Even China has been moving past COVID at this point. So we're, we're going in, in full tilt just in terms of the demand side. But on the supply side, I think you know there's a lot of things going on right now where OPEC Plus came out over the weekend. They said they were going to try to take capacity offline to keep, you know, oil prices the floor at $80. Um, and on demand side, um, what's been keeping oil prices low over the last, you know, six months or so is that President Biden and, and his administration has been drawing from the strategic petroleum reserve. Um, and right now, when I look at the levels of that reserve, it's the lowest levels we've seen since 1983. So at some point, he's going to want to refill it. Um, but he probably, you know, from a political standpoint, doesn't want to wait until 2024 because he's going to lose a lot of ground just in terms of polling. So he's going to have to do it soon. We like ZEO, which is our equal weight oil and gas ETF. Um, a lot of the div underlying dividends from the companies, they don't know what to do with the cash. So they just keep, keep increasing the dividends. Uh, so ZEO, what we're doing is we're flowing through those dividends to uh, unit holders. Uh, the dividend on ZEO is about 5% right now. But it has been increasing over the last year or so. So let's shift gears a little bit now. Um, there's still a great deal of focus on, on interest rate policy. You pointed out in, in the QSR that the rate hikes that we've seen over the last year are actually the fastest recorded pace in history. So do you think monetary policy is becoming less relevant in terms of what's driving the markets? And maybe you can walk us through you know, how you're positioned in the, in the fixed income sleeve right now. A lot of people are still focused on rate hikes. And I think, you know, rate hikes is more, you know, to me, a 2022 story. Uh, you know, you and I were talking about um, the central banks probably taking a pause in the spring. And we said this back in, in the fall. Uh, we've seen that with the Bank of Canada so far. We have yet to see that with the Fed, but that's probably looks like it's imminent, especially with uh, some of the CPI numbers that came out yesterday. 
Um, but I think, you know, when you look at rate hikes, I think, you know, as I mentioned, um, I think what potentially changed everything was the launch of this, you know, uh, BTFP program, which is the bank term funding program. So just as a recap, that was the facility uh, set in place that allows these regional banks to deliver their uh, health and maturity securities that were underwater and then delivered it to the um, Fed in exchange they get par value for those securities. So, you know, technically the Fed doesn't lose money if you ignore the time value of money um, because when they mature, they basically mature at par. What happens, however, is that they need to expand their balance sheet in order to buy these securities. So, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, smells like QE, acts like QE. It probably is QE, right? So, it, it very much is, you know, the end result is very much similar to QE, it expands the Fed's balance sheet. So when you look at the Fed's balance sheet over the last year, they've been working very diligently in collapsing it or shrinking it uh, through quantitative tightening. The launch of this program essentially erased the last six to seven months of quantitative tightening. So that's why when you look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury, it's dropped about 65 to 70 basis points since March. Uh, that's why we like long duration. So we've been adding duration uh, last quarter, we added duration. Uh, this quarter, we're adding a little bit more duration, adding to, to ZTL, which is our long-term uh, U.S. Treasury ETF. And another reason why we like this ETF is that, you know, we mentioned, um, you know, we're looking at that correlation between stocks and uh, long bonds. And over the last year, it's been positively correlated, which means that it's not an effective hedge against uh, the stock market. But in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that correlation become negative. So all of a sudden, these long bonds um, should, uh, as if rates continue to stabilize, would once a big, once again become an effective hedge. And you know, one other thing that we're looking at is the real yield. So the difference between the one-year yield in the U.S. and CPI, and that's very close to becoming positive at this point, which should be very good for bonds. So currently, the overall duration of the portfolio on the fixed income sleeve is is sitting around 6.7%. Um, in terms of credit quality, we do have a tilt um, towards government bonds, as you mentioned, as a portfolio hedge. We do have about 37% of the total bond portfolio that's in investment-grade corporates. And at this point, we have a zero allocation to high yield. I do want to mention um, that, you know, not every investor is going to be comfortable taking on uh, the 17-year or so duration that comes on with the uh, ZTL, which is our long treasury ETF. Um, so for investors that are a little bit hesitant to take on pure long duration exposure, uh, they may want to consider something like uh, ZAG, which is our aggregate bond ETF, or ZDB, which is its sister product, the discount bond ETF that has a similar duration, similar credit quality, but is more tax efficient in taxable accounts because the bonds are bought uh, at or below a discount. So it's a little bit more tax efficient for, for taxable accounts. So these are great alternatives to ZTL for clients that are not comfortable with the very long duration exposure. It's a good middle of the road option. And we actually use these as our core fixed income allocation within our models. So shifting gears again, year to date, we are seeing a factor leadership change um, in our model in terms of the core equity exposure, uh, the way that you construct the model, it's two thirds in the core exposures and one third in the satellite or sector exposures. So within that core, you've tended to do um, a blend of low volatility and quality. 
So last year, you know, we had significant outperformance with low volatility and dividends um, where quality underperformed. And so this year, we're seeing a bit of a reversal of that. Quality is starting to shine here. It's doing really well. Um, so you're using this, this barbell with the low vol and the quality. Do you, do you feel that's still effective? And how do you position going forward in terms of the equity factor exposure for the core? Well, if it ain't broke, then don't fix it, right? We like this barbell approach, uh, both tactically and from a strategic standpoint as well. So, you know, tactically, we always talk about, you know, what economic regime we're in. And, and right now, I think, you know, based on inflation, based on economic growth, I think we're probably, you know, in a stagflationary environment, maybe a slow growth environment. So historically, you know, the three factors have that have outperformed have, have been low volatility, dividends and quality. Uh, last year, as you mentioned, low vol was clearly the winner. Uh, dividends was a uh, distant second, but still pretty good performance. Quality, um, you know, did not perform well. That, that's because of the technology component. But as you mentioned, we're getting this factor leadership change this year where quality is starting to shine this year. I think that's because, you know, interest rates have leveled off. So uh, technology starting to take off. Quality, I mean, the metrics outside of technology have worked really well even last year. That barbell approach works really well because I think the Fed has to continue raising rates. So let's say if inflation comes in hotter than expected all of a sudden and the Fed has to start raising rates again, uh, we know low volatility is going to outperform in that environment. On the flip side, if rates continue to level off and if the Fed you know, eventually pauses, that means you know quality is going to continue to perform well. So we like that barbell approach. Um, we think dividends is a little bit you know, very similar to low volatility. So we like low volatility and quality just because from a complementary standpoint, they work better with each other. Strategically, we did a lot of backtesting just in terms of factor combinations on our desk. What we found was that, you know, 50% low vol, so 50% ZLU, which is our BMO US low vol ETF, and 50% in ZUQ, which is our uh, US uh, quality ETF. Over the last 10 years, obviously, you know, history uh, is not a indicative of, of future returns, but historically, over the last 10 years, that combination, 50% in each, has delivered the same performance as the S&P 500, but where it really made a difference was that volatility was significantly lower and the max drawdown was significantly better as well. So we like that combination. Uh, it's been working well for our strategy. And you know, as I mentioned, from a tactical and strategic standpoint, we like that barbell. Great food for thought. Great points to consider, Alfred. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. So that concludes our quarterly installment. And I look forward to chatting with you again next quarter. Likewise. Take care. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. ETF Market Insights has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.